Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Hello and welcome to the Spotlight on IRT podcast. I'm Matt Lowry, and today we're going to be covering errors. There are a few constants in this world, gravity, pi, and that software doesn't get archived on version zero. Whenever you start introducing changes, whether it's due to protocol changes, shifting timelines, or human error, you start introducing the possibility for errors. During my career, I fielded questions asking me why an error took so long to manifest or why it wasn't noticed. The honest answer is that sometimes those errors can go unnoticed until a specific set of circumstances occurs. I wanted to share that information with all of you to help everyone understand how an investigation into an error takes place when we are talking about software and all the moving parts associated with it, the who, the what, how, and why of investigations. I have invited two experts today, Lucas Kasbar, a group leader in software development, who has experienced conducting technical investigations into these very types of errors, and Christy Madrick, quality assurance manager who oversees the investigations group for LMAC. Christy, Lucas, welcome. I want to start off with what may be a very loaded question. What are the most common types of errors that you encounter? Well, commonly, uh, a lot of the IRT errors that we can see within customized software can include functionality issues where the software may not be performing as per the custom requirements. Often when we think about custom requirements, this may be because the IRT system is designed that deviates from any type of standard platform offered. Again, errors are often going to be seen within those custom requirements because it's not standardized functionality. We may also run into situations where we may see manual errors, and these can often be introduced by sites or software vendor personnel. So when we're considering um, in errors introduced by sites, it might be using the particular IRT platform as a whole. They may not know that if they click a button for a second time, it may impact their randomization or the transaction that they're going to do. When we think about vendor personnel, software vendor personnel, the types of manual errors we may have in-house would be if we're sending an email off and it ends up triggering a transaction that may send unblinding information. Both software vendors and then site personnel can have similar errors that are going to be introduced through a manual process, meaning the person themselves committed an action that resulted in an error. And Chris, I think it's important to highlight in here as well that in the IRT system, mistakes are made by the site or the client in general. So what we're looking at here is manual updates from outside the system in the database may actually occur and that can lead to uh, said manual errors. Kit getting dispensed incorrectly. So the IRT says give it kit 123, the site accidentally grabs kit 321. Mm -hmm. So yes, Matt, you are you are correct in that. To, to piggyback off what you just said, if a site makes an error, like you said, maybe grabs the wrong kit off the shelf and we go to correct that there is the possibility of introducing a further error. That we as a software vendor personnel might actually um, create ourselves in fixing 
the original lever produced by the site. So, you know, in software it can be very unforgiving because there's a number of actions that can lead to the final error being reported. And again, it can start at a site and the action of fixing a site error could cause us to increase our likelihood as a software vendor to also have an error. So it, it's kind of unforgiving sometimes how these um, IRT issues can pop up and how the story can go as to the many touch points that can contribute and ultimately lead to the final reported error that we do have. We don't have to go too, too deep into it now. I'm sure we'll touch on it in a little bit, but you know that's the importance of assessing the impact when we move a system live. What can happen and are we accurately assessing that before? But to your point, uh, Lucas, sometimes you can't always predict what could ever happen because there's a million and one outcomes of what could actually happen. So while we do an impact assessment and you strive to do and to capture every potential scenario, there are just situations where we can't account for every scenario in, in, in its entirety. And that's primarily driven by the fact that it's a custom type software IRT. Again, something that's more standard, something that's going to be more routine is not going to have as much variable and variation as we do see with customized software. A few of the other ones that we can commonly see would be uh, system downtime or system unavailability. These often can spur up through maybe an unexpected uh, maintenance window that may take longer. It could relate to even a site pressing a button and it results in the timeout of the system because they pressed it four times and the way that the system's configured, it caused it to actually lock up. Another one that we commonly can see is data transfer errors. Often when using an IRT, a lot of the data does get transferred to to a third-party vendor. So depending on the uh, platform or the tools that the third-party vendor are utilizing, it can cause data transfers to not go through, or there may be something on the IRT vendor side that needs to be uh, addressed as well, but either way, that transaction cannot go through between the actual IRT vendor and the third-party EDC vendor. What about when you're importing data? Do you see errors with that as well? Matt, absolutely, we do see errors uh, regarding that, and that's why it's very important to have validation procedures detect these types of errors uh, and something that can happen due to this is what happens when a lab import value comes through it's incorrect or just a little bit off the accuracy and that can lead to misdosing mis misdispensation a trickle down effect that can occur with that that should be pretty detectable almost immediately if there is an error why are there delays in detection sometimes why is it that sometimes you have an error that was introduced months or years ago? Well, that depends on how the system's really built. There's, with so much data and so many scenarios that can happen, when are we going to hit that scenario? Depending upon the branch that the, that the system actually goes through, we may not hit that months down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> what we commonly see, even when we're being asked by our by a customer to look into doing an investigation, it really does become somewhat difficult to gain an accurate perspective of what happened because commonly when we're seeing these delays, it can average anywhere between nine months to two years after the actual software defect was introduced into the code or, or missed through testing. So, you know, when we're looking into investigations, trying to drive into the specifics of the human who made the error can be somewhat difficult because of this significant timeline delay. And thanks, Chrissy. That's a really good point. And to, in addition to that, what's the impact of that error? How many different areas may be affected by this? And that's very important to detect errors down the road. We may find something, and if it's not accurately 
assessed with impact that may occur again or may have already occurred and we just don't know about it. So it's very important to assess the impact. Yeah, when you're thinking about impact, it's actually interesting, Lucas, because when we think traditional software development in terms of at least the IRT with the customizations, it's very novel. This is sometimes being the first set of coding that's ever been done for a specific system. When you're looking at even overall impact assessment across other design systems, there could or could not be a significant impact. And it does, again, make it somewhat more difficult to gain a true understanding of what the impact is of this particular problem. So how would you go about, if you have the impact, getting to what the cause of that problem was then? Well, Matt, when you think about traditional root cause analysis techniques, uh, commonly, let's say, the five whys, Uh, you know, it's very useful in situations that are repeatable. So the industry would say, use the five whys to drive how you do your investigations. Well, that's really good for, let's say, a manufacturing process, but this technique is really not as useful for this novel, complex work such as software development. If we combine the delays that we're seeing with regards to the nine months to about two years in combination with really it being novel code and something that we may not see that's repeatable, it can really impact how these investigations are conducted and really getting to that true root cause and why. When you think about conducting um, a software investigation, the really first part of that is to understand the what. And what I mean by the what is basically that technical reason for the error. Then you're gonna focus on looking at more of the why, when, and how. Piggyback off that, Christy, uh, that is a, is a super good point and, and I think it's important to note here there are multiple reasons for an error. There's not just one root cause, boom, that's it. There's contributing factors involved and they can be based upon you know, our step-by-step process or this can actually be uh, you know, the people process, what's happening in, in people's lives that may contribute to the, their, their thought process or something that occurred to, to cause that error. So we take it into account everything. And Lucas, to your point, that's excellent because when you think about wanting to do root cause analysis and robust investigations for software defects, while I hone in on the fact that you know getting that technical evaluation is important, that is going to pretty much tell you the technical cause. It's uh-huh. going to be whether it was a code error that was missed in testing, whether it was a requirements flaw that led then to a code error to a testing. Maybe it was a UAT implementation miss. Um, It is important, you're correct, to look at the technical aspect and, to your point, get that more robust understanding. Um, It's easy to say something's a code error. Very easy. It's very, very Very easy. easy. Because at the end of the day... It didn't work right. It didn't work right. Yeah, it didn't work. What happened? There's a code error. (laughs) Very, very easy Mm -hmm. to say, but why? Right. Why was there a code error? Right. Was it misunderstanding of the requirements? Was the requirement missing? Did test miss a scenario? There's a lot involved. Now, in all fairness, though, if we look at the delays that we've talked about, Uh, we do come up with that code error. And when you're doing an investigation and you want to talk to the developer and say, why did you miss this? Quite honestly, when you have a delay of nine months to two years, they're not going to be able to give you an accurate account of what it is that they actually were doing at the time that led them to enter the code incorrectly. What we do find is when we do the technical evaluation, if you follow that step of identifying what it is that the coder inherently did wrong, maybe they incorrectly put a slash when they should have put a semicolon in writing the code, that gives you that high level definition of what that code error is. And and that's a good point too. And that, that will almost bring us to how do we conduct these technical evaluations? Where do we where do we go here? How do we even start? Right. 
and you need to know the personnel involved. You need to know what what's going on. How how do these people code? How do these people test? What are their what what are their trends? Do they usually follow good coding practices or in you know or even the particular coding standards involved? You know, and coding standards. What are they? They're just basically the framework that you're that you should be following while coding. And so you know that brings me to somewhat of a recommended way to ensure that we do ro- that anyone can do robust root cause analysis. As I said, five whys doesn't always work, but if you can conceptualize and get to the what or the technical evaluation of the problem, then you can begin to further explore the five whys utilizing somewhat of a fishbone diagram. Often the fishbone diagram, something that we see in manufacturing, such as the five M's, can include things such as process, people, technology, and other factors. So when you're doing software investigations, while it's important to evaluate and understand the technical what of the problem, you really need to rule out the other whys or the potential symptoms of that problem that led to it so that you can drive for true preventative measures in the future. Now, I want to ask, Lucas, in in conducting your technical evaluations, have you ever seen when you've done investigations where you can't get any further than just a code error? Those things happen. Eventually, sometimes there's just an error. You know, sometimes there's just a blatant miss. Uh, And to get to that, and we may be rewinding a little bit here, but we reverse engineer, basically. You know, we start off, there's the what, like you said. Here's the what. Now, how did we get there? And that's where the reverse engineering comes in. Wake up, you realize you're in Denver. How did we get here? <laughs> yeah, how did we get here? So, so even with the best laid plans of looking into more of a robust analysis of the why, sometimes it really just comes down to the technical ent- the technical error that was introduced. Yep. You can't get any further. It does happen. Okay. So what are some of the most common uh, root causes that you've seen when you're conducting, let's say, that technical evaluation? Christy, you can get, I mean, there's so many. I mean, you can get into, is there a design error? Is there, are, are we making assumptions with the code? Right. Uh, or with the requirements, I'm sorry. And then just to clarify, what we're talking about with those assumptions is the requirement says uh, box is going to be blue. Well, the box is blue, but it's royal blue. It's not navy blue. Yes, good example. And I think another example, and even more mathematical and technical, is are we rounding to the nearest whole number or a tenth? When we say, hey, round this number, that's not specific enough. Are we assuming that we're rounding to the nearest whole number? No, maybe we're rounding to the nearest tenth or the nearest hundredth place. That, But that's, or we're rounding down, we're rounding up. Um, these are the technical details that need to be explicit, steer away from those assumptions. Then we have code errors, crazy, we, that, that sometimes just as clear cut as that. Delivery time flame, frames, are we rushing to get things done? That does happen. Deployment, communication, um, ineffective scenario coverage, or data setup. You know, mm-hmm. we see that a lot mm-hmm. also. So really, when you think about it, there's a lot of root causes in terms of what could lead to that technical aspect of what resulted in the software problem, basically. Right. And there's ne- there's very rarely just one issue. And then, you know, when you think about what the regulators are looking for, EU guidelines and FDA regulations, they want you to call for process and procedural changes as well. When thinking about how to conduct investigations, particularly software investigations, it's good enough to get to the technical evaluation, but you must employ additional measures to rule out and identify per regulation whether it's process or procedural changes that are needed. And again, these systemic items. And when you say process, 
we can go down right to the nitty gritty of the whole thing. Say we're installing a release. Was it installed as per our defined process? And if it wasn't, well, there's an addition, additional contributing factor. Yep, that is absolute. So to give you some examples, piggyback on what you're saying, Lucas, you know, some of the things that would be recommended from a process standpoint to look at when conducting an, an investigation is basically looking at all of the associated validation documentation. This is where you may look at anything such as the URS, you're looking at change requests, you might be looking at test cases, the specific code itself, any types of tracking tickets, and you're looking to see if any of these errors within the documentation itself could have contributed to the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, was there a communication and a ticket that was opened by a particular vendor that said something X, Y, and Z, and it was miscommunicated to the person who received that ticket, they read it differently, and that then led to how the error was introduced. And we don't, we don't just see that, or in general, you don't just see that in, in ticketing or cases, you see that in even requirements is what was portrayed in the requirements actually the purpose of what the site is trying to accomplish. Right. And that happens, I mean, unfortunately that happens a lot as well. The other component with that, is, and any software vendor should have a sound quality management system. So when you're looking at to go into that deeper idea of why beyond the technical evaluation, you're going to want to look at any of the relevant processes or procedures that are placed to determine is there process gaps that could be improved upon? Is there any type of lack of process altogether or process deficiency? The trouble and I, the trick that I see with process is because we're customized software and IRT vendor, it makes it hard to itemize every single scenario that is possible in every customized studies. While procedures can be in place, it may not always define the specific action a developer must take in coding a specific customization. I think a good specific example is a particular process in coding. Are you dealing with, say, table-driven functionality? That is very, that's gonna be key in our decision on how many scenarios are we covering here? Are we just putting in the metadata and our core framework will handle it accordingly, or are we customizing functionality completely. That's great for the process portion. What about the people? Uh, Lucas, do you find that developers and testers have a certain signature to the way they accomplish things? There are about a hundred thousand different ways to code one requirement, Matt. There is a ton of different <laughs> ways we can do something and everyone's going to do it differently. I think there's best practices and that's where we incorporate coding standards to make sure that we're following that process, but at the end of the day, someone's going to do one thing, another person's going to do another, and that depends on training, ability, time, time spent within the company and doing the software. There's a lot of factors in that as well. You know, I think that brings us back to the point of what we were saying in that, again, IRT, customized software. The more customized you make a particular software product, the more likely you're going to have the risk of errors because... Lucas, as you said, a coder can sit there and there's a hundred different ways that you could code that same requirement. There's no way to standardize a process to tell them how to think in coding. And while you can have best practices, you can rule out that the best practices are there and demonstrate what they need, you cannot control how a person thinks. They have to be skilled and, and yes, it's important that they have that knowledge. They should, as part of the investigation, be able to recite the basic understanding of what the process may be at hand. But as you said, 
there are 100 different ways that you can have the same requirement written and have the same output. You can't force the hand of the, the coders or the testers in how to do their job line by line. Mm -hmm. And so do you think, Christy, that's where misconceptions that come from a GMP type of mentality when it comes to customized software come into play? Absolutely. Again, when we think about GMP, it's a standardized process. It's a, you know, equipment running down the line that's the same piece of equipment over and over and over again. What we see here in conducting software investigations is that while the output can be the same, there's a hundred to a thousand different ways to have that same result. So when you're doing software investigations, it isn't always about how you're going to do a pre preventative measure across the board, because if it's a customization, that customization is very specific to the personnel and the people involved in making the decisions around that customization. So going back, it's not always about process and having a process gap where coming down a line in the manufacturing plant didn't say to do step 7B or 8C. Mm -hmm. Rather, this is a customized piece. Yep. So again, you can have high-level processes, and any software vendor should have a high-level QMS, best practices of coding standards. They should have how you would go about creating your test cases, but it cannot be itemized for every customization. Absolutely not. And when you really think about software development as a whole, you need it's one platform, but every time you introduce something different, as Deming says, variation is the root to all problems. Well, here we are, when you're talking about customization, the more customizations that are made, the higher the likelihood is that the personnel involved in developing and designing that customization from people who are requesting the changes all the way down to the people who are doing the development and testing are going to potentially put risk into that customization. Are we looking at, I think another good way of looking at it is how many different ways can we get to the results, say number three. We can take the square root <laughs> of nine, we can do two plus one, yep. we can do nine minus six. There's a lot right. of different ways we can do something and everyone's brain works differently. It does. And, and to if you were to formalize how to think, then we would ha all be robots and it's not possible to be robots because you know, we also often hear this thing where it says, well, why don't you just automate everything? Well, the interesting part about automation is you still need the person to think to run the scripts to do the automation. So ultimately, you still rely on the human mind. Who was the innovative thinker that made it automated? Exactly. The human, <laughs> that would never the person. We need innovation. So, you know, when you're thinking about diving further into the robustness of getting to the why, you, you again, looking at the technical to understand what it was that was broken, you know, code error that was introduced in test. You want to go in and look at process overall because there could legitimately be a process gap that was not recognized. Oh my, we never thought about this scenario. We need to add a whole new section to our SOP because it, it really does impact multiple studies or multiple IRT software see platforms. It all the time, all the time, mm -hmm. we see it, and subsequently we see it in the, in the other way. It's just everything's going to be different, and we need to look at the full picture, right? Not just you know directly at right. the at the error at hand. And then we throw in the people in the mix. And then, you know, another part of when you want to dive into that, uh, you know, the go beyond the, the five whys, if we want to say, is looking at how technology may have played a part of that. When you're talking about software investigations, is there maybe something to do with the hardware that contributes to it? Is there infrastructure or, or problems that come up with? Is there anything that could have played a role? We talked a little bit about how when you have a third-party vendor, an EDC vendor, and an IRT vendor, that in itself could be an infrastructure problem between the IRT vendor and the particular EDC vendor who's receiving or transmitting the data. You know, you do want to look at those components of it, which is technology, but... Nothing, nothing, and being in the trenches myself, Christy, nothing drives me more crazy 
then you finish a product, you're ready to go, you're about to click that save button, and your computer black screens. (laughs) You know, we need to take into account what's technology factors. And the technology factors could even be how the particular platform and customization is designed in the first place. So is there a way that the design of the software should have been reconsidered to have minimized the risk of the error? Framework limitations. Yep. Real thing. Yep. So these are all things you want to consider. Technical evaluation is important because it does give you to that first level of what. And then per regulation, you want to rule out the process people and technology and other factors. And if you can do that, you will ultimately, in conducting your investigations, meet what the regulators are asking for. Mm -hmm. Because they are asking that you at least look at it, not automatically assume it's human error because it's the developer who messed up. No, you want to take the option to look at many facets of that particular software error and see if you can't come to a more robust why. But as we pointed out, sometimes it just does come down to a human made a mistake. One thing that I want to circle back on uh, that I heard is the Deming quote, variation. Ah, yes, variation. Mm -hmm. So we've had a couple episodes in the past where we've talked about standards. Mm -hmm. We talked about having certain standards in place for a system. Mm-hmm. And we Lucas, you talked about coding standards. Do you find in your experience that having clients that have set standards for how they're going to do things? Uh, Matt, you know what? Standards are a wonderful thing. It makes it very easy to reuse software, make things repeatable, uh, simplify the process. But I will say it is extremely inf- important that the implementation of these standards are correct from the get-go and that we're making sure that everyone is following these standards, including the client. I think a really good example and the simplest one is uh, naming conventions. We seeing uh, people use the word subject versus patient or we seeing kit versus medication. You know, there's a lot of different things that that's a global change that makes it very, very, that can be changed across the entire system, but if we have a standard, it's very easy to implement. So it's kind of interesting. It made me think about how, gee, it's just a software change, just go make it. It's only a simple changing of a naming convention. But in in the in a thought of software, that changing of a naming convention could have such further impact on the ultimate code base as a whole and ultimately lead to those potential software defects that we're seeing. Something that just seems simple is not always simple when it comes to novel code. And I think another thing that we always want to think about is how do we begin to say what's nice to have versus what we must have. When clients are considering their requirements, they should really think about is it absolutely needed that we change the naming convention, in your example, or is it just nice to have? Because if we can begin to get more of a standard up front in doing our software design and how we code and test, we're going to see less and less errors being introduced because we're not customizing it every time. And that's Ooh. true. And, and if you think, and I'm, I'm going to u- continue to use the example for naming conventions because it just makes it a nice transition, but think about how many different times or how many different naming conventions we may have. The more we see or the, or the more we see that are repeated, we can make them into global configurations and that makes the system even mm-hmm. more simple to, to do more uh, to customize and makes the things a lot less risky because we know that we've done it before, it's been fully tested, it works. Kind of getting more back to the Deming point, you're reducing the likelihood of variation and by having standards you actually create something similar to what a manufacturing environment would is driving to do. Mm-hmm. Standardized versus everything via customization. Mm-hmm. We've talked about 
the people to process the technology. We talked about the what occurred. How do we get to the when? How do you start to determine that? Well, when you're thinking about conducting software investigations, the win is very important because the win is when the actual defect was introduced. If we go back to what we said, nine months to two years, that's a significant gap of time of when potentially the defect was introduced to the time that we're actually seeing it pop up from an IRT software defect. So, How many times do we see this defect? Right? right? The time lapse in there is important. If we had something that had occurred a year ago, mm-hmm. how many different times did that occur? How many times did that scenario cross the site, the client's path? You know, that's important to determine because that's going to help us, one, uh, determine the root cause. We may see something that happened last week and that's what triggered the investigation, but what if the first occurrence was a year ago? Mm-hmm. What's the impact mm-hmm. of that? And thinking about that impact, but it also, understanding the win gives you an indicator of where the system, the state of quality is within that quality management system as a whole for the company. So you may see a number of software defects bubble up, let's say, in a year. You know, today we've had 10 software defects raised, but if you look at when they were introduced, they could have been introduced two years ago. And from the time that they were introduced to the time that they actually surfaced, the quality management system may have changed multiple times to address and fix these problems. When you're thinking about when, it's important because when drives the state of quality of when the problem really is being introduced. And it has to be considered when you're thinking about how you do your preventative measures for the future. Once the when is known, the root causes are known, and a time frame of the error is determined. The next step is to identify the how? Yes, Matt. When you think about the how, this is going to be considering what we can do from a preventative standpoint to mitigate the risk of the issue occurring again in the future. We talked a lot about novel code and how it isn't always easy to put preventative measures in place that will systemically fix every customization that's done and the human element of it. But there are some key things that can be considered when you're looking at doing CAPAs to look at remediation action. Some of the common remediation actions that can be leveraged are obviously the immediate fixes to the software. So in this case, it might be they go in and directly fix that code. That's remediating the risk. That's really stopping the bleed in the first place. If, a, if an error is found, we got to get in there and fix it. So it's done. And doing that too, Chrissy, it's important to highlight that when we do, when we put in immediate fixes, it's it's extremely important to note is it an efficient fix? Are we putting in the right fix? Are we doing things that's going to make it better, not just put a bandaid on a system that may you really fixing it? Yeah, are we really fixing the issue? And I guess I guess that also comes down to do we accurately identify the root cause and this is something that can help assess that. You know, another thing that ties in with looking at the immediate fixes, some of the more longer term fixes that we can put, something that would fall more into that preventative um, action would be maybe documentation updates. So this might be working with the client and updating the client standards. It might be looking at the URS and, and again, we talked about standardization earlier. Maybe it's a way that we need to clarify something in the requirement so that there isn't any type of misconception on how it needs to be coded. Uh, a good example is we can go circle back to rounding. Are there examples? You know, some Exactly. <laughs> something as simple as just putting an example in the requirements document mm-hmm. to better 
convey what the language is on the page. So mm -hmm. you put the requirement and then you put an example and now you're gonna visually, as the coder's coding it, they're gonna have a better understanding of what that particular requirement means. Exactly, and that goes into even our good testing practices. Are we boundary testing things? So what's an example of the boundary, mm -hmm. right? How many decimal mm -hmm. places are we looking at? You know, is the boundary 40.00 or is the boundary 40.01? I mean, these are all, things that dive into the details of the documents that we create that we don't always consider per se when in the design phase in the first place. So these are things that can be looked at and used as preventative measures in the future. We also talked about a lot about looking at processes. It's pretty obvious that if you identify a deficiency or a gap or you just don't have any process at all that you're going to want to basically create or update existing processes. Another one that is commonly looked at as a positive way to prevent future errors is doing retesting of the software. There are common themes where at times you want to go in and retest the software so that you can ensure that the fix that you put in place is working and you're also looking to see if there's any other broken parts of the system that have since now surfaced because of this time delay that happens from the time it's introduced to the time that we actually find the error. Have to regression test, have to make sure you're covering your bases and any and again that comes right back to assessing impact. Now, you know, when you think about regression testing or retesting overall, it can contribute to some of the timelines as well because mm -hmm. it's really important that if you're going to have to retest, you're retesting the entire system for the most part, making sure that all the builds and whistles are working. Know what changes are implemented per build. Don't retest something if nothing was changed. Exactly. It's based on what was driven for the change. You know, some of the other aspects that you can think of from more of a preventive standpoint would be making updates or modifications to a particular environment. So this could include, you know, up creating new servers or updating servers. You can move something over from one environment to the next. These are the types of things that can help to prevent future issues. Another thing that you hear a lot about, I, I would say, in the quality industry is checklists. You know, we don't always like checklists, and again, given that the software development cycle is very, I would say, people-based and it's very free-thinking, checklists can be hard, but you can create high-level checklists to ensure that people are doing key components of the process that will be followed and hopefully will mitigate the risk of future errors. Double underlying key concepts, because remember, we do want to keep keep room for that innovation and free-thinking Exactly. You know, and that's, I think, what's funny when you compare it maybe to something that's a standardized process. You want to have checklists, but you can't live with the creativity of the people who are designing the systems. Mm -hmm. So it's a double-edged sword. You box them in too much, we're not going to be able to give the functionality that they need to conduct the software platform that's needed. But at mm -hmm. the same time, you let them too free, then you could introduce errors. My there is thought, a balance. My thought is if we're reviewing, a checklist is great. Mm -hmm. Right, where we have to make sure we're reviewing certain aspects of the system. But yep. if we're mm -hmm. if we're doing the initial coding or initial testing, thinking outside the box mm -hmm. is what makes things better. It does. Now, another thing that I think is most important that we've seen is really utilization of retraining. I know that you know industry is that retraining is not a preventative measure, but you need to make developers and testers and uh, project managers and design managers aware of potential risk to customization so that should they ever see this again, it, they may reconsider how they design something in the future. So when we talk about retraining, we're not talking about just, Lucas, sit down and read this SOP. We're talking about an actual engagement conversation about what went wrong in the issue One-on-one. One-on-one, on one. One on one and, and I'm using the word counseling loosely. It's not a punishment. And people right. need to mm -hmm. understand that when we bring up errors, we bring in 
something that may have happened or mm-hmm. something that you may have introduced, it's a matter of learning and getting better. That's right. Mm-hmm. Staying unbiased, making sure that we truly understand what's happening and that the, the person involved truly understands so that they don't have to make that mistake again. It's not a punishment. Right. And because it's customized software, you often have to just keep educating staff of the possibilities of what could come with a customization. But again, customizations are very specific to that one software design. So we may see it once and never see it again. Mm-hmm. So you have to be somewhat you have to be somewhat limited to how much you're feeding to the staff, you know, how much you're retraining staff. So I think those those one-on-ones are most important because that particular person who created the error will learn on how to improve their coding, how to do their coding practices, how to do their testing practices. But when you begin to look at training overall, awareness activities, it's important to think about could this potentially happen across more studies? Because this is more of a common customization we would see. When you think about that, that's where you want to do more of what we would call something of a a lessons learned or where we would actually bring a group together to discuss a particular failure, a particular error, because we do believe at some point this particular design may be utilized again in future IRT design overall. And it also helps with knowing, Matt, going back to what you said, the particular developer or tester's signature and how they how they usually do things exactly. important to know that because you mm-hmm. can you can know what may or may not happen or have a nice prediction based mm-hmm. upon how people do things some people may mm-hmm. do things in a similar way and mm-hmm. you'd want to address that that mm-hmm. issue with them as a whole it goes back to the analogy of you know how do you clean your room yeah, everybody it cleans different. it a little bit differently <laughs> well, I just don't clean it oh yeah <laughs> Well, I think, you know, even with the best laid plans of prevention would be to ultimately limit the variation. Mm Because in all honesty, every time there's a customization introduced, the likelihood of an error is higher. So we can put all the measures that we want to try to prevent something from happening again. But unless there's the control around the customizations that are being asked for, we're still limited to something that's novel and unique each time. You know, I want to also point out a little bit about what the FDA and the EU mentioned. The level of preventative measures or remediation actions that are employed must be really focused on the criticality and severity of the incident. I wouldn't expect that every time we have a slight error where maybe somebody couldn't get into their system today for five minutes, would we expect a full-blown preventative measure. It might just be a matter of document the technical uh, result that led to that problem and move on. It's really important when we don't want to put so many remediation actions in place that we ourselves create an unstable working environment for staff to follow. When you're thinking about the investigation, we have to obviously communicate that out to the client. What needs to be incorporated into that? That's a great question, Matt. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can, I guess, document the outcomes of your investigation. I've seen where you may just get an email to say, hey, we looked into this and um, this is what we've done to fix it. Uh, you can go as far as being very robust. But one of the key aspects that I think really is important is you really got to get a good incident description. So that incident description needs to kind of describe what that specific incident was, what was reported by our users or the people who are um, our clients who are using the IRT system. What exactly is it that they reported? You want to include within there that who, what, and when of the specifics. From there, you need to do the incident containment. When we talk about incident containment, it's, again, based on what that immediate fix was, that immediate remediation action. 
you're talking about ensuring that you're including interim fixes or temporary workarounds or even possibly repair or rework to the IRT. That incident containment is the first step to keeping the problem at bay. We're stopping the bleed. It's preventing the problem from resurfacing at that point. Before we locate patient zero, right? Exactly. We're just basically making sure it's not broken in the immediate. Mm -hmm. Then we want to look at talking about the scope of an investigation. So commonly per regulation, the EU and the FDA, they want to see that there's that robust investigation in place. So it's really important that you define what your scope of investigation is and you're basically putting in the boundaries of the items that you looked at. If you conduct your investigation in a manner of what we've talked about where you identify the what and then you go into those particular four different areas of people, process, technology, and other factors, you're really establishing the scope of your investigation. After you put that in, it's really important to look at driving from the root cause. This can be your primary root causes or some of your contributing uh, root causes. And it shouldn't just be the root cause is a code error that was found and not found in test. A lot of times when you're creating an investigation report, you actually have to add a little bit more details so that the reader can understand what that root cause outcome is. So you may need to put in there some of the key points of the functionality of the system or the design that could have led to the confusion on why the developer may have made an error. So you can't just say it's a process gap either. You may need to add details. Well, what's the existing process and what have we had to change to fix that particular process? Piggybacking from understanding uh, in general, it's important to highlight that you need good communication between that technical team and the investigation team because that's what's going to piece everything together. Absolutely, because you know when you're looking at investigation overall, the root cause is driven by the understanding that the technical team gets on assessing the what, and it's also then the understanding of the other facets of the investigation, those boundaries that are looked at to coming up to a final true root cause. All those components should be documented in that root cause section. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another important aspect is quality impact. Now, as an IRT vendor, we may not always know the outcome of the impact of a particular error. In, In a quality impact section, an IRT vendor is taking their best guess. We were told that a patient had to go home for the day because the system was broken and they came back the next day. So in that quality impact assessment, your quality impact section, you're basically saying the who, what, when, how, and why based on what we understand. We may not know the how it's impacted, but we, you should know what's impacted, how much is impacted. Exactly. We could say that kits weren't delivered at site and it was 400 kits. We can state that. That's the direct quality impact, but we can't explain or really define that longer impact, that longer term impact at the client level. I think it's a key key point. It's something that can't be ignored. We really need to know how much, why, and what so that, again, we can use these these issues or these these incidents and learn from them and continue to improve. Yeah, the quality impact section is important too because it also helps to drive the criticality of the investigation. Mm-hmm. So if we know that one kit didn't get delivered to a site but it was delivered one hour later, that is not going to be as critical of an investigation. It may still follow the same investigation path, but it may not be as critical of an incident where uh, something where we couldn't deliver 400 sites and there was, you know, five patients waiting for all of their drugs, that's going to have a greater impact. Mm-hmm. It's going to increase the likelihood of a critical impact to our client. And subsequently, we're going to want to put bigger or, or larger preventative measures in place to mitigate the risk of that happening. Right. 
And then finally, there's always the need for that kappa remediation section. This is essentially telling the story of how we're going to prevent this in the future. You take this report, you put it together. What is the sponsor's role? They're supposed to have oversight. You know, a sponsor's role is very, I think, it's really indicative of what the sponsor sees the role to be. But when we're thinking about what I, you know, what we would like to see from that standpoint of review of investigations, we should first be looking at having them to assess whether it is a high-risk investigation. The high-risk investigations are the ones that the regulators are going to be most interested in. If we want to get a sponsor involved, we want to ask them to look at things that are going to involve patient safety and data integrity from their perspective and see how that investigation um, meets the criteria of the regulations. We also want to ask that they're looking for something such as, you know, the accuracy of the details in the investigation. We only know what we're told. So if we're told that site couldn't get 40 kits, we're going to go on the assumption that that's correct. If we have a critical incident, we're going to want the sponsor to confirm that that information is accurate. We're also going to want to make sure that the verbiage is clear and that they can actually understand what's being stated in the reported investigation. It's not always easy to write an investigation in layman terms and convey exactly what the software problem was altogether. An uh, important job of the investigation is to take something that's very highly technical and write it to a level of which a person who has no software experience can understand. And it can be difficult. And it's that key piece for communication as well. We should have that technical and investigation uh, communication happening that, that may reduce the amount of translation needed for that. Exactly. And keep it at a term of which anybody can read the report and it makes sense. A few other key pieces that we would want to be looking that a sponsor checks for is even the quality impact section. We talked about this. We only know what we're told from a quality impact standpoint. We need verification. If they need more in a quality impact section because this is going to go to their file and it's impacted 55 patients and they have to report it to the FDA, we need to know that and we can update that. And also, Christy, if I'm doing an investigation and I'm, and I'm trying to assess impact, I'm looking directly at the requirements. I'm seeing what's supposed to happen based upon the requirements that were given and what did happen. Right. So we're not going to always know the impact it has on those using the IRT. We're only going to know what we perceive to be the impact based on what's reported and what we understand the requirements to mean. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple other parts is we want to also make sure that the root cause doesn't make sense to the reader. Does that root cause, is it something that they can back? Should they be asked by a regulator? And do they feel that the capital remediation actions support that root cause? And then finally, looking at making sure that there is estimated completion timelines built into any of the CAPAs. Now, have you seen it in your experience where I can actually just update the requirements and the system's functioning as it should have been? The system was working correctly. It was working per the requirements. It was coded correctly. It does happen. It, it certainly does happen. I think this will circle back to the beginning of our conversations where we said that we need to make sure that we are, we are aligning in what's written in the requirements and how the client understands how the requirements should be working. So when you have an error, is it important to start looking at that? Because it may not have been critical. It may have just been something that was a small, minor issue. How do you trend those? Is there a way to trend and start looking at those type of defects to say, you know what, this happened, but it's not really an issue. It's not systemic. Trending is, a, is an interesting discussion. And again, when you're talking about the variation of IRT system designs, trending can be somewhat of a challenge because everything's different. 
So while everything looks the same, it can all be different. Some of the aspects that are recommended to look for when you consider data points would be looking to see if there's specific customizations that are being done across the board. Like, are Mm -hmm. we seeing a standard customization that every IRT that's being designed is using? If that's the case and we see errors with that standard customization, then we need to go back and look at that standard customization and see if there's something we can do to amend it or fix that. Sometimes if there's a repeated issue that's being trended, the fix for that becomes a standard. Exactly. We take it away from being a specific customization at a lower level and say it has to be a standard customization across the board. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that you can often look at from a a trending data point standpoint is process. You know, you want to look to see is it the same process that, that is ultimately being found in these investigations and it may not be the same specific section of that process but if it keeps if it if the test process keeps coming up we may need to look at the test process as a whole and determine whether we need to revamp it rewrite it make it more robust so you can use process as a data point you can look at personnel because you will want to look to see is it the same person who might be creating the same error over and over again And there could be many reasons for it. Maybe it's a knowledge deficit, maybe they're new, maybe they're pushed for time, but you do wanna see, is there personnel where there's a trend? Is it the same person? And then you can look at hopefully getting them to a point where they're doing better in the future. You can also look at reported problem types. So what type of problems do we keep getting reported? Oh, we keep being told that sites are are not being supplied with shipments. Well, if that keeps happening, you can look at that and see if there's a common trend or a lower level trend that's leading to that. But again, just because you have a reported problem doesn't mean that the lower level root cause is the same because of the intricacy of the designs of a lot of these software systems. Yep, you may have something that the reported problem is due to inventory or shipments, but how much have we seen that that's encapsulated in? Exactly. It's it's a huge amount. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could even look at unblinding. Sure, you could say you have a lot of unblinding errors, but if if you get down to the crux of what each one is, one was a result of a functionality flaw, one was a result of a person who sent an email out, another one was a result of, you know, accidental fax machine information being sent. So while you may have a higher level problem type that appears to be a trend, that lower level root cause is not usually similar. Do you think a, a good key point here, Chrissy, is that if we are trending and it's based upon reported problems type, make sure we get down to the actual lower level root cause and make sure that's what we're trending on. Exactly, and that would be another data point that I would recommend if you're conducting trend analysis on IRT software, you do wanna look for root cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, root cause and similarities with that. So if you're, if you're seeing similar root causes, then it's something you wanna look into further. Functionality plays a part of it too. So depending on how the IRT is designed, there may be different modules or different specific functionality within each particular design. So you wanna look at that functionality or that module and see is there something common about that that we could fix. And another one that's often very, um, I would say debated, but it, it really does play a part in trending is the number of changes or amendments made to a system. So, you know, we go back to, again, every time we change something, we increase the likelihood of a problem, okay? So historically, what we've seen is the systems that have the higher rate of amendments or changes are more than likely going to have the higher rate of overall defects. And how do you prevent that? I don't know if you can, or you make sure that from the very beginning it's done right and you don't have to keep changing it. Well, and Christy, I would define changes for sure as not necessarily bugs in the system. How many times we're going into 
set requirements and changing the way they work. Exactly, because you know, uh, day one it was meant to be something the requirement is to pr produce X, Y, and Z, and day 50 they determined that it needs to change. Now we have an actual amendment, or the study design is actually changing, and the more of them you have, increases the likelihood of defects. I'm going to give an example to, uh, to make this point a little bit more clear because I think that the clearer it gets, the less debate we can have over this. Mm -hmm. Let's talk, let's talk in terms of a simple calculation, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe a dose calculation. If we calculate it one way, mm -hmm. that, that data is saved. That's in the system. And then mm -hmm. 50 days later, we decide to calculate dose another way. How are we accurately assessing the system if now we have two different functions to get this dose? There's two different ways, two different outcomes. Mm -hmm. That data is in the system and, and it's not being changed. Mm -hmm. So now you have the introduction of more problems because you've completely changed functionality from an initial go live to an amendment and it's not going to re be reflected correctly. What happens when that subject comes in for another visit? Yep. Are we yep. using that data or are we amending it? So, I, you know, I, I think when you're talking about trending, there's definitely some key things to take away. There's definitely data points that can be used. But remember, it's novel coding. It's, it's basically customizations. It's different every time. So what on the surface looks like a trend when you do a deeper dive into the actual specifics of the root cause, it's not always a trend. When something does go wrong, what is one piece of advice you'd love to give to our listeners to say, we're working on it. It's tough, and I think that what I would say is when we do an, a technical investigation, it takes time because it needs to be detailed. You need to get down to the absolute root cause, the concrete level where you cannot ask yourself why anymore, and that just takes time, and we need you need the, to be allowed that time to, to get that accuracy. Yeah, and I think another important part is that you really want to focus on trusting your vendor, trusting that the vendor has the process in place to do and conduct thorough investigations, and that in the end, the report that sh will be provided is actually the clearest and most comprehensive document that we can provide to assess the root cause and come up with the preventative measures that we believe as an IRT vendor will improve the future state of any IRT platform of the future. Great. Well, Lucas, Christy, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate it. And Thanks, talk Matt. To you later. Thanks, Matt. Bye. I want to thank both Christy and Lucas for joining us today. There are a couple things that really stuck out to me. The first was Lucas explaining that a software developer has hundreds of different ways to come to the same result and code the requirement correctly. And the second was Christie's quote about Deming and the introduction of variation. Every time that software is changed, it introduces risk. Although no software ever gets archived to version zero, each time it is touched, you start to add more potential risks. Most importantly, the big takeaway here is to make sure whomever you are working with has a process. I've audited companies in the past where I've heard, we don't have errors, so we don't need a process for it and I personally take an issue with that. What's important is when you do have an error, you understand the company's processes and you trust their process. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Matt Lowry, and this is The Spotlight on IRT Podcast. You've been listening to The Spotlight on IRT Podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.